This is a Partially Examined Life episode preview. You can purchase the full episode individually or support the podcast to get all of our episodes. Review your options at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. You're listening to Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, then thought better of it. Our question for episode 72 is something like, what is terrorism and can it ever be morally justified? We are joined by international terrorism expert Jonathan R. White to discuss several articles from various historical periods. You can join the discussion, get the texts, and read loads of supplemental material at partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Mark Linsenmeyer in Madison, Wisconsin. This is Wes Alwyn in Boston, Massachusetts. This is Dylan Casey in Middleton, Wisconsin. This is Jonathan White in Grand Rapids, Michigan. John, why don't you tell us how you ended up on the show? Well, I entered the field of technology lately, realizing <laughs> that my iPod might not start a fire. Then I discovered podcast. By accident, I stumbled upon you guys just as I was teaching a quasi-philosophy class introducing freshmen in the Honors College to uh, the idea of liberal education. I was rereading all the stuff that I pretended to read when I was studying history <laughs> and uh, found out that I was absolutely fascinated with philosophy and loved the way you guys approached it. I wrote you guys a fan letter and never thought I was going to be on a show with you. So <laughs> this is a thrill for me. I mean, you guys are really philosophers and I want to be a philosopher. Mark, you're a rock and roller. and I know CF and G7. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, that's one of the dangers of writing fan letters to us. It's uh, you, know, you might get you might get recruited. You might end up having to yeah. So you're at Grand Valley State University, right? Grand Valley State University, you bet. Tell us what the things you do there. What makes you a terrorism expert? So government people come to you and ask you stuff. Well, you know, in my academic career, I've always tried to pick an obscure field that nobody knows anything about so that I can act like I'm an expert. And I kept changing and changing and changing to religious terrorism, and it finally caught up with me. So I just uh, I got interested in this stuff back in the 1970s when I was on a SWAT team on the Jackson Police Department. I had a master's in military history, and terrorism seemed very close to military history. I've also been very interested in religious terrorism, how Religious messages are twisted and turned into violence. And I've just started studying and writing, ran into Brian Jenkins uh, from the RAND Corporation at a conference in 1983 and asked him, what should I do? He gave me a three-step plan and it worked. And uh, that became my field of expertise. You've edited several textbooks, right? And the subject of terrorism, these are pretty widely used for introductory yep, courses. I, uh, I come from a very practical perspective. and. The folks who like my work tend to be military folks, security folks, and uh, law enforcement people. The folks who don't like my work are folks on the theoretical side because I don't examine a lot of theory. For example, when we were reading the uh, article from Stanford, I looked at that and I thought... Well, this is really nice, but it doesn't help me get people off the airplane. By the same token, I've written a whole lot about what they were discussing and have been amazed at how close social science and history really are to philosophy. And Wes, I confess to you, I'm really glad you guys weren't my professors because I've had a pretty exciting life. And if you guys had been my professors instead of the guy I had, I would have majored in philosophy and I wouldn't have been trekking through the hills of Pakistan then. So this has been okay. 
And you said you've been using the podcast with your students. Is that right? Oh, yeah. You guys uh, bailed a lot of them out. (laughs) (laughs) Especially, and I love the one on Voltaire when... I always thought Voltaire was pretty philosophical in the way you guys kind of took him apart. I thought, oh, well, uh, I like you anyway. But uh, I have one one young lady who uh, just said to me, I had no idea how to write this paper. And I listened to the show you suggested on the Partially Examined Life, and my paper came together, and it did. She got an A, and she's very happy, and now she's one of your fans, too. Right. I just got a letter from somebody saying, I have a paper coming up. Do you want to write it for me? I'll give you $10. $10. Wow. Hey, for $10, I'll write the paper. (laughs) Well, it's an academic salary. You guys know something about that. That's why you went out to make money, right? Yes. Now we're rich. (laughs) It says you're the executive director of the Homeland Defense Initiative. What is that exactly? I could really come up with a good story. I can tell you the truth. And I guess I'll tell you the truth. (laughs) I was consulting with the Department of Justice state and local anti-terrorism program prior to 9-11. And after 9-11, the government asked if uh, I would take a leave of absence. And actually, they asked if they could pay Grand Valley my salary and just have me join the program full time for a while. It was supposed to be six months. It turned out to be three and a half years. I was the dean of social science and uh, the president of the university created a position that would allow me to go out and help the federal government as well as state and local entities across the country. He created, through our Board of Trustees, the Homeland Defense Initiative. They gave me the title executive director in case I wanted to go back into administration because executive director, dean, you know, kind of gives you some lateral flexibility. Yeah. But I actually only supervise myself. I keep getting the provost saying, and during my personnel review this year, I've examined my strengths and weaknesses and counseled me on what I do wrong. And I've recommended myself for a pretty good pay raise, but it doesn't seem to go. <laughs> okay. So you made it up, in other words. I'm an N of one. <laughs> hey, I consult with the government. You know, that's what we do. Yes. <laughs> Wow. All right. Well, we have about five articles on the list. Let me just list them off. Actually, if you look at partiallyexaminedlife.com, there's a description both on this episode itself, and then usually there's a link to for more information or to get the readings. I provide a couple paragraphs in each of these, but just to list them off, we had uh, one by J. Angelo Corlett, Can Terrorism Be Justified? That's from 1996. Another recent one, Donald Black's The Geometry of Terrorism from 2004. We had an article in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy by Igor Primorats on terrorism, and then some historical sources. So one, uh, The Philosophy of the Bomb, A Brief Response to Gandhi, which is associated with uh, the Indian nationalist Bhagat Singh that was uh, working at the same time as Gandhi in a less peaceful way. And then Carl Heinzen's Murder and Freedom from 1853, and the beginning of, uh, we read Carl von Clausewitz's On War from, I guess he started writing in 1816 and didn't finish it before his death, so his wife put it out, 1834. So that's a big list. One of the statements in uh, Donald Black, I think, is very succinct. He says that terrorism, the social geometry of terrorism, which occurs because of the modern age, we couldn't have terrorism as we experience it today in the 1850s because of physical proximity didn't allow the upward movement of violence. But he concludes that terrorism ends up being a criminal justice matter and a quasi-war. 
that's where I think Clausewitz comes into play. He certainly didn't write about terrorism, but he did talk about principles inside of conflict. And when I read Mao and read Clausewitz, I see a lot of the principles coming together in what today we call terrorism. You just mentioned something in summarizing Black's article that is a dichotomy or question that was with me throughout reading all this stuff. The distinction between the violence associated with war and the distinction of violence associated with criminality or police actions. And my own impression is that there's a kind of continuum both in states as well as acts of rebellion and stuff between things that we would call warlike acts and things that we would call criminal acts or police actions. And I think that that distinction and trying to lay out whether it's a distinction in kind or a distinction in degree is at the heart of a lot of these articles. And I was wondering if you could clarify what kind of difference we're talking about. If we look at military force, military application as a statement of communication and an expression of political will, trying to dominate another political entity with your own political will, war becomes a means of communication, very violent communication with horrid outcomes. I'm not suggesting it's picking up the telephone, but it's sending a message. Terrorism is also a means of communication. It's communicating an ideology. It's communicating a religion. It's communicating a set of political grievances. But unlike war, which takes place inside an accepted set of international norms, terrorism takes place in the shadows within criminal law. Succinctly, not all criminals are terrorists. In fact, very few criminals are terrorists. But all terrorists are criminals because they have to violate criminal law in order to carry out terrorism. And I think that's where the dichotomy occurs. Maybe because so many terrorists claim political grievances against governments, it would be helpful to me to articulate why political grievances in the past and attempts at rebellion wouldn't qualify as a kind of terrorism and what the boundary between the political entities we're talking about. I mean, I have some sort of idea about it, but it seems really murky and it became more murky to me in reading these articles. In what you just said, it really turns a lot on what we mean by political entities and legitimate entities. And in the situation you just cited, the definition of being a criminal was just being not part of the political power. And that might be absolutely sufficient, but it makes the question of terrorism sort of just you're on the wrong side kind of thing. And I'm not sure that, well, certainly not everyone here agrees that that's the case. Dylan, to answer your question, I think modernity has a lot to do with it. And Donald Black gets at that. I simplify him a lot because it helps me understand Donald Black. I think he's so profound. And it also helps my students. Looking at his article, we need three things in modern terrorism. We need an aggrieved party with the ability to travel and access to technology that can kill a lot of people. Looking at the Sepoy Mutiny in the middle of the 19th century, there were terroristic elements to it, but it was against the British population that was inside of India. 
Whether that's justified or not is a question of political perspective, but it was a particular type of violence. The mutineers were not going to go to London and set off a series of bombs, killing civilians around London to draw attention to their cause because the technology didn't exist and the ability to travel, not incognito, but with the mass of people who are traveling, simply wasn't there. And I think modernity brings about that distinction with modern terrorism. And all the ambiguities you talk about are still there. Yeah, I think this gets us to the, you know, some of the philosophical articles that we looked at. The question is whether or not an act of violence is targeted at, say, non-combatants or innocents or whatever you want to call them. Although, you know, we did read the Corlett article, which argues for a wider definition of terrorism, which is not necessarily aimed at non-combatants. But I think, um, by contrast, Primarats in the Stanford Encyclopedia article he argues for this definition of terrorism where you include in that definition the idea of targeting innocents or noncombatants. So you distinguish it outright from, say, guerrilla warfare or other types of activities that are, you know, by the aggrieved party against, say, people who are considered to be perpetrators, you know, say a military official or president of some regime or something like that. And we would also distinguish essentially imperial activity that would take over territory and in which most of those living in that territory are not combatants in any way, yet they're subjected to violence by the imperial party. I mean, everybody from Rome to variety of Greek states, to Genghis Khan, to imperial powers in the 16, 17, 1800s, you know, they're taking over territory, they're taking over villages and killing people to get them to not resist. And in some cases, those communities might be taking up arms. I guess there, to me, there are the beginnings of the whole discussion of state terrorism, which one of the articles brings up, but we're kind of bracketing that off to the side. No, no, I, I think that's a good point. I mean, the Heinz and Murder and Liberty reading, which I thought was really rhetorically pretty amazing, right? But, it, you know, I, I mean, that's the kind of point that he's making, which is that you know, if you want to accuse the revolutionaries of being murderers when, in fact, states are built on murder. And so he's trying to eliminate all those distinctions. But I, I think it's a good question to say, what do we call? So during World War II, and this is something Primorats brings up as well, you know, you have the terror bombing of German citizens, which killed hundreds of thousands. So the German noncombatants were directly targeted because at least initially the English thought this is the only way to stop them. Basically, anything that feeds the war machine of Germany, including non-combatants, must be targeted, or we must demoralize the German people so much if that's what it takes to stop them. So what do we call that? Is that an act of state-sponsored terrorism, one that we might consider justified, or would we call it something else? I mean, I think that's a good yeah, question. Yeah, the point is, is the terror part, then Hiroshima and Nagasaki... Right. We'll scare the crap out of them that we can destroy your entire country so they will stop. It's pointed out that you can correct me, John, but I guess so the uh, UN has tried to come up with a definition of terrorism just to be able to have resolutions about it. Right. And the countries won't agree because right. some of them want to stress this state sponsored terrorism and some want to are against anything that would call their freedom fighters terrorists. The West is against any definition of terrorism that would include a so-called state terrorism at all. Like drone strikes, for instance, or 
Sure. I think one of the things that it's necessary to do in the modern world is to separate a discussion of morality from a discussion of terrorism. And again, I was intrigued with the Stanford article talking about the way social scientists approached it, the way historians approached it, and that philosophers approached by asking what is terrorism and can terrorism be morally justified. I thought that was interesting because I think historians and social scientists do that too. And I think philosophers, especially after listening to you guys for so long, uh, do the same thing social scientists and historians do. But we're discussing morality on one hand. And then we're talking about small groups of non-state actors who want to target people who have nothing to do with uh, the struggle in order to communicate a message. There are times when that might be morally correct. There are times when it is not. There are times in war where the violence of war may be morally correct, there are times when it is not. But I think, and I would leave this to you guys and your discussions and dichotomies, but the discussion of morality is a different discussion than the tactical and strategic aspects of conflict. Terrorism is a specific way of fighting, more organized than rioting and uh, people just going amok and less organized than guerrilla warfare. So that to me is a useful distinction. I'm still trying to get my head around it, but it's putting a name to this activity that is often an unabashedly political action. That is, the goal isn't money or wealth. That would be ransom or kidnapping or intimidation. So that's not terrorism. So one condition of the thing that we're calling terrorism is that it has a political motivation. And another one is that it is specifically targeting in its violence people who are not strictly part of the political entity. There is an argument trying to be made that they are broadly speaking part of the political entity, but they are not in any way understood to be decision makers. So, you know, something in which the terrorists were bombing police stations or that sort of thing might fall on a kind of gray line that bombing a marketplace does not. That's one of the moral arguments inside of terrorism. For example, Al-Qaeda Central and uh, Osama bin Laden have justified their attacks. Ayman al-Zawari in particular. Uh, I'm sorry, am I name dropping now? Doggone, I'm trying to remember That's all the okay. rules. Okay. okay. That's okay. I think they're pretty well-known names. Okay. <laughs> I just want to play by the rules. Who is this bin Laden fellow? <laughs> <laughs> They specifically expand the target to any American. In fact, they would expand it beyond that. Anybody supporting America, and ironically, they kill more Muslims than they do Americans. But they're looking at major targets like that. In fact, Zawari came to realize that inside Iraq when he sent a scathing letter to uh, the director of Al-Qaeda in Iraq, stop killing Muslims. You're turning people against us. Michael Collins in the Black and Tan War. This was a war of the Irish Republican Army mm. against troops from the United Kingdom uh, right after World War One. Michael Collins imposed an idea that he called selective terrorism. He copied that a lot of that from the people's will in Russia in the 19th century. 
morally, Collins believed, you did strike the security forces. You struck the Royal Irish Constabulary at that point, which would become the RUC and now is Police Service of Northern Ireland. You would strike the military targets. You would certainly strike Dublin Castle and the intelligence system. And that became, although operating outside the law for Michael Collins, that became a moral activity. Uh, Certainly for the British, it didn't. Did Collins understand himself as to be engaging in terrorism? And is that terrorism what we would consider to be terrorism now? I think so. And Michael Collins certainly did because he called it selective terrorism. And the Irguns Vailoimi in uh, Palestine, the uh, proto-modern Israelis, practiced the same thing. In fact, I think it was Menachem Begin. I would have to double check. It may have been Isaac Rabin. I can't remember. But his code name was Michael Collins. And they followed Hmm. that Irish model. One thing we haven't brought up yet is just terrorism against property, so that it might be similar acts or sneaking into a public place and blowing it up, but if the intent is to just destroy a bunch of property, like I know that as soon as the measures came down after 9-11, then we heard in the same breath about monitoring of folks in animal rights groups and that kind of thing who uh, might even consider themselves terrorists if not for the association with acts like 9-11, but whose methods would be to go in and destroy the apparatus that they think is uh, causing evil, certainly with a political goal in mind and with the idea of causing fear that this whole enterprise, whatever they're against, is not going to stand. I mean, everything from bombing of abortion clinics to like the bombing in Ma- at UW in the 60s regarding the Vietnam War and generation of military research, that kind of thing. Well, I would consider all of those acts of terrorism. It's based on a scale, but it lends itself to terrorism. And now we're getting into the pejorative nature of the definition, something I think the Stanford article also mentions. And I've written about that quite a bit just because it's so obvious and lots of terrorism analysts talk about it. One of the things that occurred in the United States prior to 9-11, if you were examining terrorism, you were examining something extremely exotic. And most people in law enforcement wanted nothing to do with it. I recall in the early 80s, I called a friend of mine, a sheriff in Michigan, because I had been invited to this terrorist conference. And uh, I said, I can bring somebody with me. You want to go? He started laughing and said, yeah, John, as soon as I get a terrorist in my county, (laughs) I'll be the first to give you a call. About three years later, he called me and said, John, have you ever heard of a bunch of people who say that White people are made in the image of God, that there are mud races and that Jews are from the devil. I said, yes, that's Christian identity. That's uh, one of the things that I study. He said, well, I have one in my jail and he's really disrupting things. And I thought, aha, now you have a terrorist in your jail. And so you are calling me. If you would have gone to the conference, you would have known that. (laughs) So the Corlett article, it's interesting this, John, you mentioned the pejorative definition of terrorism that's generally used. And I think Primarotz in the Stanford article kind of adheres to that. Again, you define terrorism as targeting innocence necessarily. But Corlett argues that we shouldn't prejudice ourselves one way or another. We should establish a sort of neutral definition of terrorism that doesn't predispose us to say that it can or cannot be morally justified. And now I'm looking at page 167 at the bottom where he comes up with this E prime definition. The definition he likes is pretty broad. 
I'll just go ahead and say it. Terrorism is the attempt to achieve or prevent political, social, economic, or religious change by the actual or threatened use of violence against other persons or other persons' property. The violence or threat thereof employed in terrorism is aimed partly at destabilizing the existing political or social order, but mainly at publicizing the goals or cause espoused by the terrorists or by those on whose behalf the terrorists act. Often, though, not always, terrorism is aimed at provoking extreme countermeasures, which will win public support for the terrorists and their cause. So there, he's trying to avoid saying that terrorism is necessarily targeting non-combatants or innocents. He wants to leave open the idea that it could be nonviolent protest that still is designed, you know, so if you have a highly restrictive society and you go out and do a nonviolent protest, that's still going to put fear in the hearts of those that don't want the, you know, apartheid was the example he gave, who don't want that to change. And so that is using terror. He's not saying it's terrorism. He uses that as a counterexample okay. to an author who argues... So it has to be violence or threat thereof. Yes, you're right. Yeah, there's an author who argues that terrorism is unjustified, Carl Wellman, and he gives a list of it's harmful, uses terror, unduly harms the innocent, is necessarily coercive, infringes rights. And in each case, he gives examples to say that these things alone aren't enough to say that terrorism is unjustified. So in the case of it being coercive, well, civil disobedience is coercive. That doesn't mean right. it's terrorism, but it's that's the point, I think. But we, we would also exclude other kinds of violence by groups like the KKK lynching blacks in the South would not be considered terrorism under this definition. It doesn't have, seem to have the necessarily political change issue. Uh, well, I think I, it I does, though. Yeah, yeah it it's, it's trying to keep blacks down. It's the attempt to prevent political, social, economic, or religious change. So it's the fact that the blacks were getting too uppity and voting and all this stuff it was the reason that they were doing that. And it was to intimidate the rest of them and, you know, try to get them to move away or whatever. I can understand yeah. that. But how is it destabilizing the existing political or social order? A mainly aimed at publicizing the goals or causes espoused by the terrorists or those on behalf of who the terrorists act. Well, Corlett makes the point that it can be for the sake of preserving an order as well. So I'm not sure why that didn't make it into his final definition there. but. In the article itself, the point is that you, you use it for a political purpose, and it can be to maintain the status quo in the face of certain societal changes. Well, if you think that destabilizing existing political or social order, that the KKK is addressing a social order that they perceive as blacks feeling free to just be out there living like regular folks, and right. that is the order that they're trying to destabilize, that no, they need to be in fear and huddled down and you know, move off to somewhere else. I think it'd probably be clear to say destabilizing or preserving, but I think you're right, Mark. You can flip it and look at it as which do you call the political order? The fact that blacks are playing a larger role in society or, you know, the, the previous order in which they weren't. As a variation, you could on a, a slave holding plantation in the older days, maybe a master might make an example of an attempted escaped slave or something to put fear in the rest of them. But would you call that terrorism according to the same broad definition? Because it's an attempt to keep that social order, keep everybody in line. It seems that once you allow that, then you're really opening yourself up to quite a lot of stuff. That's a good point. You're right. I mean, Black makes a distinction between terrorism and lynching and feuding and other kinds of social activities. It makes it sound like a, uh, a gala or something. That's not what I mean. But <laughs> At least the activity of lynching, which he might consider a kind of a mob activity if it's done essentially on the fly, as opposed to the activity of an organization like the KKK, 
who's maybe behaving in a slightly different way than mob activity. Right. That's a good point. Yeah. If it's merely unplanned and reactive mob violence, yeah, then it, at least for black, right, it no longer is. It seems to me like that's true for Correlate too, because there's this explicitly political aspect, which I take to be meaning that, for instance, Timothy McVeigh's case. Was Timothy McVeigh a terrorist? Not according to Black. Or is he just really a pissed off guy? I think with Black, keep in mind that he is talking about pure terrorism. And pure terrorism has the social geometry direction of up. It is weakness to power. And things that go in other directions are not pure terrorism. If we drop the distinction with pure terrorism and simply look at the issues, the counter efforts for the Klan and for terrorists are extremely similar. And there's a victim, a victim suffering. The victim is symbolic. The purpose of the violence is communication. So I really respect Black. In fact, I think sociologically he captures the essence of pure terrorism. But Clausewitz also writes about pure war. And then he talks about war in the political world because pure war doesn't exist. Terrorism in Black's social geometry is pure. Terrorism as it exists in the world is nebulous and messy and comes in a variety of forms. One of the ways that I've tried to solve the problem practically is to use a typology and really differentiate between types of terrorism because different types of terrorism demand different types of responses. A lot of my friends in political science criticize me because I include a lot of crime in terrorist activities. And the reason is simple. The same thing that works against very sophisticated terrorist networks works against organized crime. I was giving a briefing in Kansas City a couple of years ago talking about how terrorist cells operate, where they function, how they draw finances, how they intimidate for investigators. And a lieutenant or he was a command officer from the Kansas City Police Department anti-crime unit came up to me and said, gee, what you're telling me is this is just organized crime with political purposes. And I said, well, yes, from a practical point of view, it is. And from a prosecutorial point of view, we're not prosecuting any of these folks for terrorism. We're prosecuting them for the crimes they commit while they're operating in whatever realm they're operating in. I guess is the organization part necessary for the terrorism. That's what I I mean. It it seems like a key example of a terrorist activity would be. So you have two forces that are finally, you know, have been in conflict and are finally coming to a peace. So the two governments have said, we're going to make peace. But then there are individuals among one of the sides or the other that say, no, this is a bad peace. And they, whether it's an individual or a small group, go over and blow up their former enemies. So that's has the correct power relation. It has the correct social geometry, according to Black. But it seems like it's almost irrelevant whether it's an individual or a small organized group as to whether you'd call it terrorism or not. It functions the same and you'd be doing the same kind of stuff to both prevent it and to disavow it that the government can still say, no, 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 we really want to keep this peace. These are just criminal elements in our society that are perpetuating this. Absolutely. And terrorism becomes such a pejorative term because it's in the government's interest to call opposition terrorism. And it is in the opposition's interest to call themselves anything but terrorists. 
So the term gets bantered around rhetorically. And again, I just like to point to the specific problem. The one you outlined, Mark, is so common. Groups of extremists say we will not have peace, whether it's Israel, whether it's Ireland, whether it's uh, the Basque nation and liberty. We will not allow this to happen. And so they end up targeting some of their own people. Al-Qaeda has done the same thing. And they're just trying to impose will, and they're trying to impose it violently. The pejorative, nebulous term of terrorism can be applied, but a more effective way might be to say, okay, what's the problem here? What are the aspects of this problem, and how do we approach that problem? And I freely admit that never begins to approach blacks' pure terrorism. It doesn't come up with our definition or the philosopher's definition, if the article is correct, about the desire to have this ultimate definition of terrorism. But one of the analysts that I respect so deeply, and I will not drop his name, (laughs) said that academics are going to write ad infinitum about the definition of terrorism, and it will not enhance our understanding of terrorism one bit. What we need to do is look at specific problems. Thanks for listening to this episode preview. You can purchase a full episode at our store page. Get it by supporting us through Patreon or become a partially examined life citizen. We provide supporters with ad-free access to our full catalog, including new exclusive content. Configure our citizen feed to get it all beamed straight to your Apple or Android device. Learn more at partiallyexaminedlife.com support.